going on, everybody? You're listening to The Sane Show, the show about nothing and everything. I'm your host, Cliff. And today I have another special guest with us. I have marketing executive Royce Wolf joining us today. How you doing, Royce? I'm doing fine, Cliff. Doing fine. Good, good. I'm excited to have you on the show. Excited to have the conversation that we're going to have today. So really quick, before I introduce the topics, I want to take and quickly do the social media shout outs. I want to thank all the listeners and all of our subscribers and fans in all 60 plus countries across the world. I appreciate you guys. I love you guys. Thank you for continuing to like, share and subscribe to the same show it really means a lot. And if you're listening and you don't already follow us, be sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Sane underscore show. Again, that's Sane, S-A-N-E underscore show on Instagram and Twitter. And then check us out on Facebook, The Sane Show. Again, on Facebook, that's The Sane Show. So today, we're going to talk about sponsorship, marketing, and entertainment. And then we're going to have a conversation about corporate social responsibility as it relates to media and entertainment. Following that, we're going to have an interview with you, Royce, so that I can ask you some questions so that the listeners and I can learn more about you, your background, and all the fun things that go along with that. So to kick it off with the first topic, sponsorship, marketing, and entertainment, you know, with your background in sponsorship marketing, which I find to be very cool, I, I thought it'd be great for us to have this conversation uh, as it relates to sponsorship marketing and entertainment and just some of my thoughts about how sponsorship marketing is really big in entertainment obviously you know I, I look at sponsorship marketing and entertainment marketing to be one of the same and i know you were even talking to me about how with product placement within productions being a thing before we even coined the term entertainment marketing. If you could just give us a little bit of insight into sponsorship marketing, entertainment marketing, and the whole thing with product placements and brands you know, getting behind certain productions and being able to push their products. Well, you know, it's always been part of the entertainment industry. You can go back to radio and brands were always bringing you shows. You can go back to television and brands were always bringing you shows. I mean, the classic example that I think I mentioned to you earlier, Cliff, was the integration of product in Bewitched, you know, television show of the 70s or 60s, excuse me, the 60s, whereby Chevy integrated their new models into the Bewitched storyline. So you always saw Darren Stevens, the male lead of the show, driving a Camaro, you know, his boss driving an Impala, the more stately sedan. So it's always been there. It's always been a part of the consumer experience. And so what we have is the evolution of product and brand integration now. I mean, just stop and think about how many different brands you've seen in your favorite movies? How many different brands you've seen around you? It's always been there. I think it will always be there. It's just gone to a new level at this point in time. You know, brand recognition and positioning, they're still there, but they've taken on a new level. We're moving now in sponsorship to 
audience engagement. You know, it's like how much time does a viewer spend engaged with a product? And this is what's happening now as we're being more able to, in a sophisticated way, target. And what I mean by that is we have digital channels. And so now we can cut through more than ever. You know, clutter has always been an issue. So if you look at sponsorship, one of the things that was sold was exclusivity. So you want to stand out. But now we're talking about how to actually measure the return on investment through using digital properties, because they provide specific data points that maybe were not as clear in the past. So, I mean, that's the future. I mean, that's the future is, you know, as we move into this online streaming environment, we're going to have more opportunity to have digital information, data points, analytics. So sponsorship has taken on quite a a new role. I mean, I still think you have to be as a brand where you're expected to be. For example, if you if you go to a ballpark and I know this is a we're not going to ballparks right now in in this pandemic. But, you know, if you go to a ballpark, what do you expect? You expect to have a beer. At some point in time, you have a beer and Budweiser is supposed to be there. So the consumer expects that this brand will be there. I mean, that's passive integration, but it's expected integration. So that's what I'm talking about. There, there is the old and there is the new. So we're entering into a new phase of sponsorship. We're entering into a new phase of measurement. But the key is that the brand has to be where their brand is expected to be. You, you bring up some really great points especially when you talk about the evolution of sponsorship marketing and entertainment marketing. I even think about, I I listen to some other podcasts and I listen to them do what we call a host read for the sponsoring brand's product. And I find it so interesting because when they do the host read and they, they help a lot, oftentimes it's the host that has a personal connection to the product or they know somebody that can, and they create that personal connection where me as a listener, I'm listening and it's not like listening to a a 30 second ad, right? Where they're just, Hey, go check this out. These are features, promo code, this or that. Like they'll still drop the promo code, but they're not really pushing the product. They're creating, it's about the story. And as you were talking, one of the things that came to mind for me as well is Coca-Cola because Mm. they've excelled at this on so many levels. Even I I always tell people about Coca-Cola's 2020 content marketing strategy, because that's one of the things that they uh, emphasize is storytelling. I've looked at their portfolio about sponsorships and the activities and the little things that they do at these live events, especially the big festivals to engage consumers. So yeah, when you talk about that evolution, it is, it is something like, and and I agree with you, I think it's going to always be there. It's just a matter of how is it going to evolve? And I think that next level is engagement, the experience. And, you know, even, I don't want to get too far off, but it makes me think about content marketing, right? Like, how are we creating that personal connection between the brand and the consumers of the brand? Well, you know, you you raise a very good point, and you, you touch on a key aspect 
of brands, and that is authenticity. I mean, you know, if you're not authentic, you're not believable. And for a brand not to be authentic, it's fake. Okay. And so you're just pushing your way into the consciousness of a consumer if you can't be authentic and natural. So this is what we're talking about with brands. You know, to be unobtrusive and to be part of the experience is what I think brands long to be. And that's what sponsorship is about. If you can do it correctly, you're, you're part of the experience. And then when you're part of that experience, you do something very interesting as you fit in naturally. You can tell the story. You can say why it's appropriate to have a Coca-Cola, why it's appropriate to have a Budweiser, why it's appropriate for any particular brand to be part of that experience because you're authentic. You're part of the experience. You're part of that natural place in time. That's what I think brands strive to be. They don't, you know, advertising can be jarring, but think about it for a second. What kind of advertising do you remember? You remember those things that are natural. I mean, that are part of your everyday life. I mean, that's what it is to be a brand. And particularly, if you can be a sponsor brand and be part of the experience, then I think you're much more well-received by consumers. I certainly agree on that point. All right, we're back. Now we're about to talk about corporate social responsibility as it relates to entertainment. So I'm really excited to have this conversation as well, because one of the things that always comes to mind for me is you know, the responsibility that uh, media and entertainment companies have to consumers and you know the images that are being promoted and the, the, the influence that they have on the people and things of that nature. You know, one of the things you and I had talked about, and somebody actually sent this to me this morning, is what's going on now as far as celebrities, like Kylie Jenner posted a picture of herself in a bikini, and then you got these other celebrities that are doing these uh, nude videos, and they're not showing anything. But this is all to drive people to vote. It can easily be said that it's not the responsibility of these influencers, in which to an extent I agree. And... It is also the responsibility of the consumers to take it upon themselves for whatever. And so we talk about corporate social responsibility. Uh, obviously, there's a lot <laughs> that can be said in this conversation. I want to go ahead and get your input as far as uh, corporate social responsibility as it relates to media and entertainment companies. Well, you know, that, that, this is a very important topic because... Media is more than just news or entertainment. I mean, media abounds now. We, we have media in all shapes and forms based on the Internet. And so there is a responsibility from those organizations that we might consider traditional that are news-gathering outlets. But if I can digress for just a second and talk about 
the ethics and the morality of media. So, you know, when we talk about ethics, we talk about right and wrong. And there are some things that are classically, undeniably right and wrong. Um, we talk about morality, which is good and bad, and that varies based on, you know, your culture. What's good in one culture might not be bad in another. But I think we have to really stop and think about corporations' responsibility to consumers, because there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. But what you have to have, I think, from a corporate social responsibility perspective is a good sense of what corporate ethics are about. And it's sort of, to some extent, like doctors, Hippocratic. It would be great if corporations took a Hippocratic oath and, like, do no harm. But that's not going to be the case. <laughs> in dealing with corporate social responsibility over my life in various in financial service industry, in the sports industry, and what I found was that it varies based on the business. But if you have a good foundation in corporate ethics, understanding what is right and wrong, not necessarily what's good and bad, because that gets you into morality, but what is right and what is wrong, you will start to evolve to do no harm. And that's what I think from a corporate social responsibility perspective, corporations need to do. You know, corporate social responsibility is an area that is funded by the lines of business. So each, each one has a certain, my experience has been, each one has a certain commitment that they have to make to whatever the organization feels is the right thing to do. For example, many years ago, I worked for a company that started corporate social responsibility. And what they did was they gave a percentage of revenue for the restoration of the Statue of Liberty. That was sort of the foundation of corporate social responsibility and giving. I won't call it giving back. It's giving, giving of your profits. You know, and, and I guess in the entertainment industry, you can look to people who give, actors, entertainers, they give, they give back. I mean, two classic examples, Sean Penn, if I can say his name, and my Jersey homeboy, who I grew up across the bay from, John Bon Jovi. I mean, they have coordinated mm. programs where they give back to people. Sean Penn on more of a global perspective and Bon Jovi on a New Jersey perspective. I am a Jersey guy, you know, no, no, <laughs> no, no bones about it, man. What's your take on it when it comes to the content? Right, because we talk about media entertainment influencers what are your thoughts when it comes to the content that they're putting out that the people are taking in and consuming that influences certain behaviors well look at it this way as long as the influencers are using their celebrity for the right reason and then we get you know when we talk about right and wrong it's as long as they're doing it for the right reason which is to do good, not bad, when we get into morality, that content is fine with me. You know, if someone's doing something for the wrong reason, if, if they're doing it to stimulate some type of negative response, negative behavior, 
that's wrong. Clearly, that's wrong. So entertainers, actors, sports icons, if they do things for the right reason, then the content that they create is good. I mean, you know, who might be an example of that? Um, let, let's go way back to the content that was created in 1968. What would you see on the, the metal stand in Mexico? It was a protest for social justice. You saw these guys expressing what they felt was wrong in American society, maybe worldwide society, now that we come forward 51 years. There is a time when corporations have to pay the piper. And what I mean by that is that they have to understand that they have communities that they have to serve. And, you know, once that's recognized, protest is, is not negative. I mean, you've had protests throughout millennia, and we will continue to have protests because people feel injustice. And we're now in a period of, of social justice. And brands really have to get behind that. And they have to not be concerned so much about what it's going to do to their bottom line, but what it's going to do for their consumers and communities that they serve. All right, now for the interview. So Royce, I'm going to go ahead and ask you some questions so that the listeners and I can learn more about you, your background, and all the fun things that go along with that. So I'm going to fire off with this first question you have three different degrees, have held various titles from reporter to business director to co-founder. Was it a conscious decision to always adapt or was it a natural evolution? And what have you been able to take from these different fields as tools for a new challenge? Okay, so you're ready for this. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the three areas that you talk about are journalism, business, and ethics and applied philosophy. So with respect to journalism, what that taught me was the love of research, writing, and questioning, as well as the right to be skeptical and think in words. I mean, that's, that's what journalism taught me. So I practiced that for five years as a reporter at Fortune magazine while I also worked getting my MBA from NYU, NYU Stern School of Business. The business degree gave me technical tools, market research, finance, taught me about advertising and accounting. So, you know, these skills are building up. But the one that I liked the most in studying that helped me put those first two together was, you know, the degree in applied ethics or applied philosophy, ethics and applied philosophy, because that was critical thinking and analysis, plus the art of the argument, coming up with a premise and then defending that premise. So that's what those three degrees have taught me. So it was a passion to follow those things, but I, I use this concept that I, I'll, I'll, I'll call it this. It's the theory of logical extension. And that is the thing you do before builds on the thing you do now and then looks forward to the thing you'll do in the future. So all those skills that I was able to apply toward living on a daily basis and having to work too. 
Okay. Definitely have to take note of that stuff. <laughs> so much of your life's journey seems to have been fueled by a certain passion or energy, but your passion for filmmaking has been sort of a rider on the journey. How have you sustained that passion while also wearing various other hats? That, that's, that's an interesting question. You know, realistically, that passion for filmmaking is an, is, it's an innate part of me. You know, I used to watch movies and TV with my mother, and she was a film fanatic. And so we'd sit together either at the movies, in the movie theater, or watch TV at home and follow the storyline. And so we'd try to beat each other to the best dialogue. Sometimes she had the perfect ending. Sometimes I did when we debate which one of our ideas was better for the movie or the television show. That's part of my love for film and TV. In fact, I, as a child, and I heard these tapes because my father taped me, I used to tell time by what television show would be on. So I knew you know, what time of day it was, in the evening in particular, by what TV show was on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I in fact, I, I lived with my great-parents for, you know, my, my first few, you know, my first five years. We all, you know, lived in their house. They had an upstairs apartment. And I used to come home after, um, you know, kindergarten was a split shift way back then in the 60s. And so I'd come home, I'd sit down in front of the Emerson, and I'd watch Groucho Marx. And so, you know, I'd look at all these great television shows as a child, and that fueled my interest in TV and film. So I, I just kind of carried it through to this point in time now where, as a partner in Jaro, the television streaming service that focuses on the African diaspora for TV and film, books, art, podcasts, um, you know, that has just been a natural part of me. And that's how I got into that business now, by having that love of the dialogue and the vision that came from sitting with my mom and debating television shows and movies. Okay. That is interesting, especially the part uh, you talk about television shows uh, as far as you helping you decipher what time of day it, uh, it was really, really interesting stuff. You've worked in both traditional marketing and sponsorship uh, with success in both fields. Why do you feel traditional advertising is having a hard time with the digital age? And what role do you see sponsorship playing in the future of marketing? Well, I don't know if they're having a hard time because traditional advertising, it still has its distribution points for brands. I mean, you flip on the television, there's a brand being advertised, and you go toward your searches, there's a brand being advertised. So I I think advertising is evolving to the medium, as it has always done. It has always made messaging appropriate for the medium that is popular with the audience. So I think the big difference is measuring return on investment. The classic saying was that I'm spending a dollar on advertising, but I don't know which part of the dollar is working. Well, now with new technologies, you're more able and you're more sophisticated 
to understand how your dollar is working. It's more than just eyeballs right now. It's again, engagement. And it's like, how much time does a consumer spend looking at what is presented to them? And I think that's the big difference for advertising in the digital age. And I think that advertisers, brand marketers are understanding that and figuring out how their budgets have to be applied to the various target audiences. And, and that's another key thing. It's that you can target more effectively now than you could way back in the dark ages. In the <laughs> True. You can target more effectively and understand what your return on investment is and what your return on activation is. You know, various campaigns can now be measured more effectively with digital marketing and analytics. So my last question to you, Jaro began from a discussion on a desire to see more films from black filmmakers. You yourself were once a film school student. So for a fun hypothetical, what is the movie you want to see from a black filmmaker that hasn't been made yet? Can I give you two? Sure. <laughs> so two stories that I want to see. One is the Paul Robeson story. Another Jersey guy, you know, <laughs> Rutgers University, Columbia Law. He used to pick up my grand aunt on Sundays when she was a little girl and take her to church. And I found that out when I lived in Oakland, where she was then living. And we used to spend Saturday afternoons talking. But, you know, Robeson, he was more than just a singer. You know, he was a champion athlete, an actor. You know, like I said, he graduated from Columbia Law. And he was a, you know, a champion of what was right. So I think that that would be a great story to tell because it is, it, it, he's just a fantastic person. Uh, let me see, six foot three, 193 pounds. Um, played tight end. I think he was a tight end at Rutgers, All-American. And again, Jersey guy. Um, <laughs> but I think that the world does not know about him. I mean, I think many people in history look at him as a socialist and particularly probably a communist. But he was more than that. He was a social activist. He really wanted to do the right thing for people, particularly his people, black people. The other story that fascinates me is the Oscar Michaud story. He was a pioneering African-American author and filmmaker, and probably one of the most famous producers of race films. And he informed, you know, he formed his own movie production company. And at one point, he went door to door in Montclair, New Jersey. Again, I'm going back to Jersey. I lived in Glen Ridge for a time, which is right next to Montclair. But he went door to door to raise funds to finance his films. So I, I think those are two great stories. Don't ask me who, who the director of those stories should be. But I think those are two fascinating stories that I'd like to see told. Cool deal. Well, uh, thanks for sharing that. That was... <laughs> love questions like those as far as like the hypotheticals so yeah thank you thank you for taking sharing that and thank you for also taking time out of your schedule to take and come on the same show today i really appreciate it and as always enjoy the conversation with you 
Well, you know, as, as when we first met, I looked at Sane and, you know, Vince saw, saw what you were talking about. And I meant, I went immediately back to Lewis and Costello because it's a show about nothing, which was the Lewis and Costello, but it's about everything. <laughs> that is true. That is true. As I always say, um, Seinfeld is my Jerry Seinfeld specifically is my inspiration for saying show. Right. <laughs> and, and his inspiration was Lewis and Costello. Yes. <laughs> and I think they were even in Jersey City. <laughs> well, Royce, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Definitely have to have you back on the show in the future. And listeners, thank you guys for continuing to listen, to continue to like and share, subscribe, keep listening to the same show. And you're listening to the same show, the show about nothing and everything. And until next time, we're out.